So this season, it's all about bucking the system. And we've covered all sorts of systems so far, but one that we haven't really talked about much on this podcast, really at all, in the past is the medical system. Uh, We've touched on it here and there, but nothing too extensive. Now, I have said this before, and I'll say it again. I am not against Western medicine. I'm thankful to have access to hospitals and doctors when we need them, and even the occasional round of antibiotics when the situation calls for it. Now, that being said, I also have a healthy appreciation for figuring out how we can support our bodies in allowing themselves to heal on their own, or how we can use different natural components or home remedies to help ourselves. We don't have to constantly be running out um, and sometimes taking medications or drugs that aren't a great fit for us, regardless of what the system might say. So there's a lot of wisdom around this topic. And I feel like this is one of those areas where our culture and our cultural knowledge as a whole, we've just lost so much. And I've dabbled pretty deeply in essential oils over the years, and I've used them for our family and our livestock and our garden, like all all the different ways to use essential oils. And I've dabbled in herbs a little bit, herbal teas and a few little salves and things, but it's not a topic that I have done a lot of research in. And so I thought for today's episode, I would bring in somebody who knows their stuff. So I am thrilled to have my friend Amy Fuel joining us for today's podcast. Amy is a homesteading mama, entrepreneur, author, and the founder of the Homesteaders of America organization. She's a family herbalist and the creator of the Homestead Herbalist online courses, where she teaches others how to utilize herbalism with confidence. She's also the author of the book, The Homesteaders Herbal Companion, and The Homesteaders Natural Chicken Keeping Handbook. She resides in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, a place that offers beautiful gardens and foraging for her homesteading life. Currently on a half an acre, Amy and her family try to grow as much food and medicine as possible on their small but efficient homestead. And on top of all of that, Amy and her team bring in over 5,000 people a day to the Homesteaders of America event that happens each year. So Amy is a wealth of knowledge and I had the best conversation with her. She shared so much good stuff. So grab your pen and paper and let's get started. You're listening to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast, where ambitious people master the art of returning to their roots. Have you found yourself disenchanted with society or wishing you could opt out of the rat race? Perhaps you're craving a life that's meaningful and tangible, a life where you can create and produce instead of merely consume. I'm Jill Winger, best-selling author and longtime homesteader. Over the last 10 years, I've helped thousands of families create more connection, grow amazing organic food, and find the ultimate fulfillment through an old-fashioned lifestyle. And I can do the same for you. Now, on to our episode. Hey, Amy, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So I know we've been trying to coordinate this for a while. We had a couple different topics, I think, over the last few months that I was like, we should have you on the podcast. And then we just didn't coordinate it, but we finally did. And I'm really, really excited for today's topic, which is herbs on the homestead and herbs for more self-reliance and all that good stuff. So yeah, as, as we get started, kind of give us a little background on how you got into herbs for homestead use and all that good stuff. 
So that's a fun story. So my, my oldest son, when he was a year old, um, he was diagnosed with childhood asthma and they had him on about five different medications and inhalers and, you know, being a one-year-old on all of these things, I, I just thought there has to be something different. There has to be something more. And so I started researching nutrition and herbs and essential oils and just anything that I could learn about. And so long story short, through that and, and through, um, just him growing and, and changing. And, um, he outgrew childhood asthma around the age of six. And so herbalism actually led us into homesteading because, um, learning that, you know, learning more about pharmaceuticals and how they can damage your body and how there are natural alternatives. It kind of like blew up into let's have chickens and let's do, you know, rabbits and all this stuff. So it was um, something that I took interest in for that. And then as the years have just gone on, I've wanted to further education, really get serious about it. And, um, and so that's basically the shorter version of it, um, of how we got started in that. Awesome. I feel like this is an area I'm really weak in. Um, and so I'm always curious to talk to experts in the herb world. I mean, I've used essential oils a lot, like I know you have as well, but when it comes to the herbs, I have, I have plenty in my cupboard, but I feel like I'm never using them to maybe their best ability or to use them in the most effective way. So I guess let's just kick off with that. What is, there's a lot of options. We can do teas, we can do tinctures and infusions and salves and all kinds of stuff. What's the most effective way to use herbs? I feel like this could be multifaceted, but just Well, that's generally what happens. Like, so a lot of people are like, so how do I use it? And what herbs do I use? And I was like that in the beginning too. And I found to be more, more confusing because it, it just, some things worked and some things didn't. And, um, you know, so you have tinctures, which are an alcohol and sometimes water-based, um, preparation. And those are, they store forever. So a lot of herbalists love to do tinctures because they store almost indefinitely as long as you keep them in a cupboard uh, out of direct sunlight. Um, you know, but teas and glycerites, uh, they also have their place too. So in general, with any kind of herb, a lot of people, they will take an herb like a pharmaceutical. They'll think, okay, I'm going to take this in the morning and then I'm going to take it again at night. And that's going to be it. But the reality is that, so let's say we have a tincture. Um, you know, you would take several drops of that in the morning, again, in the afternoon, again, in the early evening. And then again, at night, you you take herbs far more than you do pharmaceuticals, which is why a lot of people, you know, don't think that they work because they don't know that, but each herbal preparation has its own unique ability. So for, um, some herbs do well in an alcohol soluble uh, preparation like a tincture, but other herbs do better in just a water soluble preparation like a tea. So those, those things are like leafy herbs, like, um, you know, stinging nettle and thyme and, uh, chamomile. That's why you'll see a lot of those things in teas. Um, so there's really no better way to take herbs. It really just depends on what the issue is. Um, and, and what you can palate, what's more, most palatable for you. Um, for things like fever, you would want to take a tea. So a lot of people are used to popping, you know, Tylenol and getting rid of the fever, but to do it naturally, you would actually have to sip on tea that you make every hour and a half to every two hours in order to stay on top of a fever. Um, so I think the biggest thing is like learning how herbs actually work 
because they work so much more differently than a pharmaceutical would. And then when we learn that, we realize, okay, well, we love tinctures, we love teas, we love, um, you know, different types of preferred syrups like elderberry syrup, um, but they all have different jobs and different ways of using them. So there's really no one better way. Um, it just really depends on, and that's a loaded question because I get that a lot from my students. Like, well, how do I know which thing to use? And a lot of times I'll tell people, you know, if you want something very easy, go with the tincture. If you want something very shelf stable, make your tinctures the last for 10, 15 years uh, and they're on hand when you need them. But if you can, you know, do the syrups and do the teas uh, because the more you can get in you at one time over and over again, the more efficient that it'll be. That makes sense. And I kind of figured it would be, a, depends on the situation sort of answer. Yeah. So for this podcast season, we've been really focusing on that reliance and breaking out of the systems and, and just becoming more resilient. So if someone's really focused on herbs for that realm, potentially, like you said, tinctures might be a place where they'd start because they do have that shelf life right. and then they can broach into all those other applications from there. Is that what I'm kind of hearing? Yeah. So what I do um, every year, I add more and more tinctures to our home apothecary. There are some tinctures that we go through, like we're almost out of singing nettle because we use that for respiratory issues. Now we're headed into allergy season. So we're going to use that a lot more. Uh, and so there are some tinctures that I just make every single year. But um, yeah, if you're in a preparedness type of way, I would I would make a list, you know, sit down and make your list of what types of ailments that you want to prep for. Um, whether it's just the common cold or whether it's something more serious, like an infection, do your research, figure it out, make your tinctures. You have them set. You're set for a while, make a big batch of it. Um, I like to make big bottles and then pour them into smaller eyedropper bottles as we need to use them. Um, and then, you know, for just your average yearly stuff for every couple of months, you would do your teas, uh, tea mixes and your syrups and glycerates. Okay. That makes sense. I like that. Yeah. Um, what would you say? Cause I've heard this a lot. What would you say to someone who's like, okay, Amy, I've tried the herbs. I played with them. I have herbs in my cabinet, but whenever I try them for a medical issue, they're just, I don't really see results. Yeah. So one of the biggest issues and a lot of people, so you have two different spectrums of herb herbalists. You have the hardcore folk people for folk method herbalism. And then you have the scientific evidence-based type herbalists. I fall kind of in between because there's efficacy in both. But the most common issue is when someone makes a, an herbal preparation, oftentimes they'll, so like take a tincture, a lot of tincture recipes you see, you know, put a quarter part of the herb and the rest of it, your liquid, but that's not always the case. So you're making a different preparation every time. And one time it may work and another time it may not. And it's simply because you're not getting the same exact dosage every time. Um, so people will either, it's, it's kind of two things, just like I said before, whether it's, they just don't know how often to take it. They don't know what, what herbs to take, or they're not making their preparations properly. Um, I'm a really big advocate for weighing out your herbs. So if I were to do a tincture or, or even a syrup, um, but tinctures are just easiest to, to talk to people about. So I would weigh one ounce of herb. And then 
four to five ounces of my vodka or liquid that I'm using. Um, and doing that every time you get the same exact preparation every time. Therefore you're getting the same exact dosage every time. So when a lot of people start doing that, they realize, okay, now it's working. Or if it's not working, then I need to just add a little bit more dosage, not necessarily to the preparation, but to your actual daily dosage. Um, Another issue is that a lot of people, we all weigh different weights. And so generally a herbal preparation is based on a 150 pound person. So if you weigh 200 pounds or even 190 pounds, you may need to take a little bit more than a person who's 150 pounds. If you weigh 105 pounds, you may need to consider taking less because there are people who have adverse reactions because of being lower in weight. And we do that with kids too. A lot of people are, uh, they fear pediatric dosing for that reason. And so it's really best to go by weight whenever you're working with herbal preparations. I feel like that could be a, a big, not necessarily with a child versus adult, but just the weight could be a big learning not a learning curve, but just a different way to think about it. Cause we're so used to like, Oh, ibuprofen is like one size fits all. It doesn't matter right. how big you are. I mean, we have to take different considerations for children, but mm-hmm. for adults, it doesn't matter. And so that's interesting. You know, that's just another, another thing to wrap our, our minds around as we shift out of, you know, always Western medicine to like, how can we take some different approaches? Right. Yeah. And it's funny because actually, I don't know if you remember, but a few years ago, Tylenol and ibuprofen, they even took everything off the shelves and completely redid their dosage because parents were giving their kids too much dosage because it was based on age, not on weight. And so even, even a lot of the pharmaceutical companies are changing that now too. Yeah. That's interesting. Okay. Very, very interesting. Um, so if someone's new to this, you know, they're working on their being more prepared, they're stocking pantries, they're growing more in their garden this year, they're wanting to do herbs, which herbs are kind of the best ones for them to start with? Cause there's, I know there's, there's tons and tons. Where would you kind of point people to begin? Yeah. I always tell people that when they get started, they don't need 250 herbs. Like everyone wants to jump into it and it gets very overwhelming. Um, the easiest way to start is to start with herbs that you actually use in your house. So those are oftentimes the herbs that you eat, like oregano and thyme, peppermint, uh, chamomile. When you can get those herbs and really study them and realize all of them have medicinal benefits. So when you dive into each one and you start learning that thyme has incredible respiratory benefits or that oregano has amazing antibacterial uh, and antiviral benefits, then you start thinking it differently. Now, we are obviously using them different as well. So when you're eating your herbs, you're not necessarily getting a medicinal dosage, but you're going to learn how to, to tailor that to what you're trying to create when you're doing a, you know, an herbal preparation. So I would start with the herbs that, that you're eating and then venture into herbs that you hear about a lot. So a lot of people hear about echinacea, elderberry, chamomile, stinging nettle, those herbs that you see on Pinterest or in your blog or homestead groups where you're like, oh, I've heard that before. And then learn more about them. Um, For a lot of students, I tell them to pick five herbs that they really want to learn about Or if they don't want to pick the herbs, pick five ailments that they want to learn about and then dive into the herbs for those specific ailments. So a lot of times students will sit down and they will, they will lay out kind of their life map. Okay. So for me, when I first got started in herbalism, I needed something for headaches. I was really, you know, concerned about fever. Um, 
asthma was obviously an issue with my son and then just common, you know, hormonal issues that I was having. So when I laid out this roadmap for our life and how we wanted to figure out how to treat those issues, then I could, you know, research each individual issue and find the herbs that I needed to study more. Um, and so there, there are, there's thousands of herbs, tens of thousands of herbs, but starting with the most common ones and starting with herbs that are really local to you, um, that you could even wild forage for are, are probably the best places to start. Okay. And I, I like the five, either five herbs or five elements that feels, that feels doable. I mean, I have some of the, the well-known herbal books and then just like thumbing through them. Right. Like, oh my gosh. Like I, I feel so behind and so overwhelmed. So I just like anything I can break it down and just check it off the list. That's how I roll. So yeah, I like it can be really overwhelming and it's really important for people to get, like, I always recommend getting a really good materia medica book, which is a book that lays out just what the herb is, what it looks like, what it does. Uh, and then I, I cannot suggest more the medical herbalism book, um, because it, it's literally just a book about what are these plants? How do they work? Um, why do they work? A lot of people don't understand why they work. What parts of the body do they work with there? And you'll find that as you start studying more, you, you could probably get away with about 15 to 20 herbs in your apothecary and be done with it. Um, you just have to find the herbs that work best for your family and your situations. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Um, so as we're building up our supplies here, where do you recommend, well, this is kind of a two-prong question. Where do you recommend buying herbs in bulk or should we not be buying herbs in bulk? Because I know there is an issue with like some dried spices, they lose their potency. Is that kind of the same thing we're dealing with with dried herbs? Yeah. Um, so I do buy a lot of my herbs in bulk because I make a lot of preparations for other people too. Um, I am a really big advocate for growing what you can in your microclimate, um, or, you know, sourcing from other people that grow it organic, or I cannot stress organic enough. You don't want to, if you're making your own homemade medicine, don't buy herbs that have been treated with chemicals. It just, it's so counterproductive. Um, but when I do buy from bulk, I either buy from Star West Botanicals and I buy organic, or you can buy from Frontier Co-op. Um, those two companies normally have everything I need, but, uh, to give you an example, I just recently put together a, um, protocol for my dad for multiple different issues that he's having. And a lot of the herbs for, were from Asia. And so if you, if you get that far into herbalism, you're going to have to really research because a lot of those herbs aren't available here in America. You actually have to import them, um, by mail. And so, you can find some on Etsy. You can find some, you know, local people um, that have connections. But for the most part, everything that anyone getting started would need would be on Star West Botanicals or the Frontier Co-op, or you can do Mountain Rose Herbs as well. Hey, friend, I'm interrupting this episode for just a sec to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Greenhouse Megastore. After a ton of research last year, as we were trying to figure out how on earth to build a greenhouse that could withstand our harsh Wyoming weather, we stumbled across Greenhouse Megastore and they were a game changer. Not only do they have an incredible number of greenhouse kits ranging from large to small and everything in between, they also carry low tunnels, cold frames, hoop houses, shade cloth, and even easy to ship polycarbonate panels, that's the greenhouse plastic panel, if you wanna build your own structure from scratch. 
If you're looking to extend your growing season and grow more food this year, they will be your go-to resource. Head on over to theprairiehomestead.com slash greenhouse to shop and be sure to use code homestead when you check out to save 10% on your order. Plus, all orders over 99 bucks ship for free. Now, back to our episode. How long, if I buy like a big bag of bulk dried, how long will it be good for? So generally you want to get rid of it after 18 months, but I am a little bit of a rebel in herbalism. If it's still bright, if it's still like very bright um, and it still smells really potent, I still use it. Um, But if it starts dulling, I I hit the two year mark and then I toss it, uh, even if it's still bright. Um, A lot of people will say a year to 18 months, but me personally, I'll push it to two years as long as it's still smelling really good and it looks really good. Okay. That makes sense. Um, and you can prolong shelf life too, by like making sure all your herbs are, a lot of them come in like those mylar bags. Um, so either, either leaving them in those, or as soon as I open them, I will put them in a big, like half gallon Mason jar and cap it and then put it in a dark cabinet that helps keep it longer too. Okay. Is there, would like freezing that for longer or that be detrimental? You could freeze it, uh, which actually brings up a good point. A lot of people are freeze drying herbs now, uh, which can preserve the liquid in them a little bit more. Um, so you can, you're, you're starting to find those more too. So you could put them in the freezer, but it's really not necessary. It, it doesn't really prolong their life anymore. It just takes a precious freezer It just space. takes a freezer you space. You have enough of that. So. Right. <laughs> good to know. Um, okay, switching gears a little bit. Let's talk about livestock, because for those of you who aren't familiar with Amy, she's written a book on herbs. She's also written a book on natural chicken keeping. So I know you have some tricks up your sleeve, potentially with herbs and livestock and chickens and all that. What what are your recommendations there? Yeah. So prevention, as you know, with most livestock is so important. Um, And so I think the aha moment for me was like realizing that there are actually farms that seed pasture with herbs you know, and they don't call them herbs. They just, they're wild edibles essentially, you know? So for us, so take chickens, for example, we will add uh, thyme. Chickens are so susceptible to respiratory illnesses. Um, and so we add thyme and astragalus to their water and sometimes garlic as well, uh, because all of those are antibacterial, antiviral, uh, and it boosts their immune system. Chickens have an immune system just, or, or any livestock, but chickens have an immune system just like us. And so adding herbs into their, their daily ration, I like to do it in their water. Um, you could put it in their feed, but a lot of times they will just it'll just go into the ground or they won't eat it. So making infusions for your animals, no matter what livestock it is, is really the easiest way to get it into their system. If you're trying to treat an entire flock or an entire herd. Um, but there are also drenches too. So there are, there are herb companies for livestock that you can buy herbal drenches for your livestock. Um, The issue though with that is that you really have to, let's say your goats get worms or parasites. You really, if you haven't tried to prevent it, you have to stay on top of it every few hours with herbs. Because again, with livestock, they work so much differently than than pharmaceuticals would or chemical wormers would. And so the other thing too is just like with humans, 
with livestock, you have to use herbs that could be a little bit risky. So herbs like black walnut hull for a natural wormer, they, they can be borderline toxic to your livestock and they can be borderline toxic to you, but it's, it's giving them just enough to make it efficient, but also not being detrimental to them. So that's something I would really love to dive into more because chickens are easy. I've got the chickens thing down, but I get asked constantly, you know, what about my sheep? What about my goats? What about my horses? And, um, again, with weight, weight is a huge issue. I can't imagine trying to, you know, treat a, a herd of cattle with herbs. You would need so much to, to treat them. And so, it's kind of that thing where you have to weigh outweigh the pros and cons uh, for which ones, but especially for smaller, um, even rabbits, there's, there's things you can give them like the general generic everyday herbs that you use, they can use as well. Okay. That's good to know. And I've, I've also struggled with that worming question. Um, a long time ago, I wrote a book long time ago on called natural homestead. And I had this vision that I was just going to research worming for animals and just come up with this great recipe for that book. And right. I started to get into it and I was like, Oh my word, this is, this is such a deep topic. And I never did come up with like the perfect thing. Cause like you said, with, with a multiple horses, a herd of cattle, like it gets, it gets tricky to dose that and get it in quantity. So I've always kind of had that big question mark remaining how do we do that? And I guess it becomes, I don't have an answer for that one yet. And it, it like becomes very expensive. I mean, unless you have a sustainable homestead where you're literally growing this stuff yourself, or you have a relationship with a farmer that's growing it. I mean, obviously prevention is important. Um, you know, that'll help it be less expensive, but, um, I did put together an internal parasite tincture, uh, for just a broad spectrum livestock tincture, but it, it's good to keep on hand if you need it. But to just keep in mind that, you know, if it's, if it's an entire herd, uh, you know, being a good steward comes before choosing herbalism is essentially the way I would go. And that's the choice we've made too, which isn't, isn't my favorite, but it's like, yeah, I don't want to have injured wormy animals just because on principle. So right. we're still exploring right. it, but it's a big, big question, I guess, yeah. for a lot of folks. Yeah. Um, it's easier to do smaller livestock like the chickens and rabbits and, and sometimes goats. If you only have a couple goats, it's not a big deal, but the larger livestock are definitely more complicated. For sure. And I think, like you said, prevention is really key. And I know if you get more into like rotational grazing and you're really doing that intensive management, I know that will take care of a lot of those issues. Right. So you don't have to really stress over the yeah. additional. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. So here's another question I always come against, even though I have herb books, how do you figure out exactly which herb for what ailment? Cause like when I look through books, um, I see, you know, this one's good for lungs and this one's good for digestive, but there's a lot that are good for all of those things. And I'm always kind of getting stuck on which one do I pick? Right. So that is a loaded question. <laughs> that is a loaded question because, um, so I put together a virus course specifically for viruses, just to give you how like loaded this question is. And it's literally, you know, like 19 hours worth of information that you, and that seems overwhelming, but it's a lot of reiteration of, you know, there are different things. So, so let's just take viruses for instance. So for to prevent a virus, you would take elderberry syrup um, because elderberry has been scientifically proven to inhibit the ability for viruses to attach to your cells and for them to replicate in your body. 
Um, but you wouldn't necessarily keep taking elderberry if you got, say, um, bacterial pneumonia, because at that point it wouldn't work, right? It's more of an antiviral than an antibacterial. So then you have to go into something else. What are you going to take for an antibacterial? So I think it's really important for people to learn their herbal um, actions. So uh, is an herb a diuretic? Is it a, a expectorant? Learn those words because as you begin studying herbs, you're going to realize, okay, well, that's what this is, but how, how else does it work? Um, you know, what are your antiviral herbs? What are your antibacterial herbs? And then it's really, everyone thinks that you can buy a book about herbs and it's going to just list all the herbs and it's going to give you the list of everything. And that's how you're going to know how to treat yourself. But the reality is that each herb has a different action and a different property that will work with your body. And so that's what herbs do. They work with your body. They do have an action on your body. Um, but, uh, so your question really was like, how do you know which ones to use? Um, I would say start with, again, I think it goes back to that list of what, what do you want to want to use herbs for? So, uh, you know, if, if you're looking at common ailments, um, the, the heavy hitters are astragalus, elderberry, garlic, uh, even onion, making onion cough syrup with honey, um, chamomile for chamomile is great for respiratory. It's great for calming kids down. Um, you know, things that are just commonly known that you can do a Google search on. Um, when you get into more complicated things like, prostate health or, you know, you know, ear infections. Those are things that there's a reason that herbal, um, courses and herbal books exist because at one point we all used to know how to do this. It wasn't a question, right? You know, our ancestors knew they could walk into a field, pick mullen and know that that would help with, you know, respiratory issues, but we don't know that anymore. And so we're kind of reteaching ourselves how to do it. But the amazing part is once you learn it, you don't forget it. Um, once you use it, you don't forget it. And so I can't really give you like a, a definitive answer, but it is important for people to know, like, um, I think it's really important for them to, to learn the actions of herbs. Uh, and then that will greatly help you figure out which herbs to use. That makes sense. And I actually, that kind of, as you were speaking, like that brought back to mind, like, how I learned to use essential oils, which are right. technically just a, another form of different herbs in some aspects. And when I got really comfortable is when I started to group them, mm -hmm. you know, like this one is the, the antibacterial, this one is the antiviral. So it, I guess it, would, it makes sense. It would be just the same because the plants are obviously really similar. So great. Yeah. And essential oils are great too. Like I highly recommend people add them to their apothecary because they're, they're not herbs. I say that in air quotes, but, um, they are the next step up. So they're, they're the, they're the bridge between just plant medicine and pharmaceuticals, but they're awesome. Like they work really well and they're really good to keep on hand when you, when you need them. Definitely. Definitely. Um, okay. So how do you know if, if someone has, they're taking a pharmaceutical, do you have any rules of thumb, you know, what about interactions or contraindications? Like, do you have any advice on that front? Yeah. So that's a really good question because, um, 
a lot of people think that herbs don't interact, like they're not powerful enough to interact with medicine, but they are. Um, so I have a friend whose uh, little girl had a liver transplant and she was making the elderberry and astragalus syrup recipe on my website. And so, um, what happened was the, what she, I went and asked her doctor about it. And there was another child within that same area that was taking the same thing. And his, um, liver transplant medication was failing because of the astragalus that he was taking. It was heightening his immune system so much that it was doing its job, but it was causing his body to interact with the medication and reject the liver transplant because the, the body knew, oh, this isn't supposed to be here. So they do need to be respected in that sense, um, but not be fearful of them, you know? So the best way is if you're on pharmaceuticals is to, to know what you're doing. So, you know, obviously if you are on a high blood pressure medicine, you don't want to take herbs that will lower your blood pressure. And generally, if you buy an herb, it's not going to say that on the package. Um, even teas, you know what I mean? Like even, a, when I was pregnant with my second child, I was looking for herbal teas from the market and I had to go through the list and even some of them, you know, they're not going to say, do not drink while pregnant because they just, that's just not their marketing. Um, and so you really have to kind of dive in again, it goes into that actions thing, which herbs have which actions and, uh, how does that affect your body? So Herbs will only interact with a pharmaceutical if it has that same effect on your body. So um, if you're taking high blood pressure medicine and you're taking an herb that can low, naturally lower your blood pressure, um, you don't want to do that because your medicine is lowering your blood pressure. Then you're taking an herb that can lower your blood pressure and that can cause you know a horrible combination. Um, so I do recommend just researching, you know, if you're drinking a tea or if you are trying to get into it, um, kind of just see what, what the herb does and that'll help you, um, understand, you know, there are also books like the medical herbalism book I was talking about that will tell you the contraindication of every herb. Um, I really recommend one of those. Cause sometimes you just don't want to get on Google and, and try to research. And there's a lot of bad information out there. So finding a Materia Medica book or finding a book like Medical Herbalism will tell you, don't take this if you're taking these certain medications. Okay, I like that. And so just, again, going back to that categorizing and understanding functions yeah. again. Yeah. So it sounds like if someone's wanting to get into this world more, that's what they need to do is just start making little categories in their mind and the columns of what goes where. Yeah. And I have a list. Um, I have an action list, actually. If you want, I can give you a link. Um, and you yeah, can share awesome. it with your people. Uh, that way, you know, you can actually go through every action and just hang it on your fridge or something so you can see what the actions are and then apply it to each herb. Absolutely. Do you have the author name on a medical herbalism book by chance? I'm sure um, we can find it if we Google it. I don't it. have it. I can okay. definitely find it no though. Worries. Okay. We can, we'll find it. <laughs> um, okay. This has been awesome, Amy. I've, my brain is full of all, all this floating around up there now. Um, as we wrap up, what would be your, your best bit of advice for someone who's wanting to get into this world, adding this to their homestead skill set? Yeah, I would say to remember that you were created to do this. Um, you, you are fully capable. It sounds like a lot. And I, I feel like a broken record going back to a lot of the same things. But once you really just 
sit down and, and learn the herbal actions and learn how herbs work, don't let it overwhelm you because you, you know, our ancestors at one point knew this, this was second nature to them. They passed it on to their kids. Um, herbs should definitely be respected in every way. But remember that in so many cases, you would have to take a whole lot of herbs in order to reach a toxicity level as well. Uh, even, you know, even hemlock, even a small amount of it can obviously make you very, very sick, but it's not necessarily going to kill you. Uh, a lot of people, we tell our kids, don't get near that, you know. Um, and so I think that in the modern world that we live in, we've been taught to fear natural medicine because we don't understand it. And we're told and taught that we can't do it because we're not a doctor or we didn't go to college for it. Nobody did. Nobody has ever gone to college for herbalism. Nobody has ever gone to college to study homemade medicine. Um, and so just have the confidence to do it. Learn slowly uh, because as you learn each herb, you'll retain it better. Make a notebook. Uh, that way you can go back and, and view everything and just encourage yourself to dive into it more and understand that you can actually do it. You don't have to have a degree. You don't have to be educated. It's totally possible. I love that. I think so many of the systems that we find ourselves in within our society have really disempowered us. And there's so much fear and there's so much just assumption that we can't do it. We're not smart enough or you have to have a piece of paper and a diploma on your wall to do all the things, to make the cheese, to keep the milk cow, to use the herbs. And it's just not true. Like there's so much knowledge out there. Like you said, we were created to do this and the knowledge is there. You just got to go spend some time and sort it out. Yeah. And, and that's another good advice, you know, spend time in nature, submerge yourself into what's around your home. Um, there's a plant ID app you can put on your phone, take it out with you. When you're walking outside on the homestead, go in the field, take a picture of it. It'll tell you what it is. As you start learning the things that are around you and you can identify those things, you, there's such a big confidence that wells up inside of you because now you know something. And now just that little bit of knowing this one thing, it takes you in further into so much more of an herbal education. Yeah. I love that. Excellent. Excellent advice. So where can folks find you? Because I know you have some herbalism courses. You've got all kinds of stuff going on. So give us the quick rundown. Yeah. So uh, you can find me at thefuelhomestead.com. So it's F-E-W-E-L-L. -L. Everyone gets that wrong. <laughs> and uh, then we also have an annual conference. You can find us at homesteadersofamerica.com. Yes. And you have a virus course. Is that open right now or is that closed? It is open. There is actually a sale, a spring sale right now. Um, so everyone can sign up for that. It's, it's good to do it now because if there's anything you need to wild forage for this spring and summer, it's good to learn about it now. Um, and I always make my preparations at the end of summer. Uh, so it's a really great time. A lot of people don't think about signing up for a virus course until they need it. Right. Uh, but the reality is that you kind of have to prepare a season ahead of time, uh, in order to be prepared for the season that's coming. So you can find that on my website too, thefuelhomestead.com. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Amy. I really appreciate it. I'm glad we finally coordinated this interview. Yeah, <laughs> it's me too. It's so always fun talking to you. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. So guys, go check Amy out. Um, she has lots to offer. I will be at her conference in October with a bunch of other really awesome homestead folks. So check that out as well. I think there's still tickets, right? Yes. Tickets. Yeah, as of right now, there are still tickets. We're about halfway sold out. So um, we are capping sure. them this year. So <laughs> <But then laughs> you want to go back. Yep. So, okay. 
Alrighty. Thanks again, Amy. And everybody listening, you can keep up with me as usual over on Instagram at the Prairie Homestead in between podcast episodes. And we will talk more next time. Happy homesteading, friends. <laughs> <laughs>